Hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 212. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, Anders Carlson Wee, is here with his new book, Disease of Kings. We'll be talking about that in about 10 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this. We love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Leave reviews on iTunes. I'm trying to pump up iTunes because I realize that we're low on the list. I changed the name from Rattlecast to Rattle Poetry, so when people you know, search for poetry, it'll come up. And I'm trying to get a little boost of uh, reviews there too so we get right on the top of the search engine because we really should be on iTunes. So do leave a review. If you if you have an iTunes account, just go search for Rattle Poetry or Rattlecast and leave a review, and that would be really helpful. Um, I, I don't have uh, I stuff myself, and so I didn't realize that it was kind of low, but so we're going to fix that. And now, as always, we're going to start with uh, our Poet Respond Poet. And Lisa Majaj couldn't be here. She lives in Cyprus, uh, and I think it's about 3 a.m. or maybe 4 a.m. there, and I'm not surprised that she couldn't stay up. She said she might try. Um, but she had this uh, really moving poem. It was a difficult decision to publish this poem. Um, it was really, it's a, it's a tough poem to read. It was tough for me. I didn't know about the situation behind this. I'd never heard of it before. And, uh, and so in reading through the details of this event that took place in uh, 1982, um, it was difficult and difficult to look at the pictures. And you wonder what, you know, what the point is, what you're doing, putting out a poem that's, that's difficult to consume. And, uh, and, you know, I really, though, think that poems are little empathy machines. And, you know, and we need empathy if we're going to have peace in the world. And we need to talk to each other and hear each other's stories. And uh, this is a story that, that I wasn't familiar with and I thought was worth sharing. A great uh, guzzle uh, from Lisa Majaj. I'm going to read her quote uh, right here. I'll put it on screen. Uh, she, she describes the poem this way. In June 1982, Israel invaded Lebanon, led by Defense Minister Ariel Sharon. In September, as Israeli soldiers watched through binoculars and lit flares to light the dark, Christian militias friendly to Israel massacred thousands of Palestinian civilians at the refugee camps of Sabra and Shatila in Beirut. Palestinian fighters had already been evacuated and the camps were defenseless. A U.N. commission inquiry found Israel and several individuals, including Sharon, bore responsibility for the massacres. I was a college student in Beirut in 1978 until 1982 and evacuated out during the invasion. Our refugee boat was arrested and taken to Israel by an Israeli Navy ship for interrogation. By September, I had settled in Ann Arbor, Michigan for graduate school. When the massacre happened, I was stunned by the images of the bloated bodies on the TV screen. There was no context for my grief on that calm campus of grass and squirrels. Later, I learned that someone I knew learned her uncle had died when she saw his corpse on a pile of bodies in the lane of the camp on the evening news. This year marks 41 years since that massacre. News agencies in various places in the world marked the anniversary. Reading the news from the distance of decades, now on the island of Cyprus, the place my refugee boat brought me to at last, during my evacuation in 1982, I found the anguish rising potent as ever over the massacres and over the fact that Palestinians are still exiles. The italicized lines in the poem are from a lament by a Palestinian woman after the massacre of Saba and Shatila, quoted in Lala Khalili's Heroes and Martyrs of Palestine. So let's take a look. This is Lisa Majaj reading her gazal, um, Exile is No Country. Exile is No Country for Sabra and Shatila. The trees burn first, ablaze in the inferno of exile. 
The tsunami of death drowned the ones washed up by exile. Soldiers surrounded the camps, then set up flares for the killers. Knives shone in the dark, a steely passage to exile. The killers hated them because they were in their land. They came because they were refugees, forced into exile. The alleys were littered with bodies, knifed, machine-gunned. The corpses twisted in choreographed despair. Oh, exile! Dust settled thick on the broken stones. Flies clustered everywhere. Wrecked buildings marked the camp's collapse into exile. The reporters stopped counting bodies after they reached a hundred. Children and grandparents sprawled in death's terrible exile. The orchestrators watched through binoculars as the murderers worked. They wanted the victims dead, not just in exile. Youth taken by surprise fell like crumpled puppets, limbs outflung. Blood pooled beneath their bodies, staining the dirt of exile. Pregnant women lay with their bellies slashed open, babes torn from their wombs, condemned to a lifeless exile. The bodies piled up in stacks, horses and corpses. Bulldozers scooped the dead to rubble-filled exile. Word traveled across oceans in time for the evening news. TV corpses brought the dead to their families in echoes of exile. Hands flung wide, mourners still clutch the broken air. Their lungs struggle for breath in the vacuum of exile. Who will comfort the children of Sabra, the mothers of Shatila? What light can they find in the ravaged lanes of exile? At the port there is no boat waiting, only sailors with dirges. Memory sinks to the depths, carrying the grief of exile. The days and the years glided away with my loved ones. Oh, Palestinians, it is a departure without return from exile. And that was Lisa Majaj uh, with her poem from Sunday, uh, Exile is No Country. Um, I want to take a quick break and go uh, to our main guest, uh, Anders Carlson Wee. So sit tight and I'll be right back with more poetry. back. Like I said, today's guest is Anders Carlson Lee. He's the author of Disease of Kings, this newest book from Norton, uh, which just came out um, hot off the press. He's also the author of The Low Passions, which came out a couple years ago, um, and Dynamite from Bull City Press, which was winner of the Frost Place Chaplet Prize. His work has appeared all over the place. I mean, the best magazines you could possibly have, including several times in Rattle. Um, he's a recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment of Arts, uh, Poets and Writers, the Camargo Foundation, Bread Loaf, Swahini, um, and the Napa Valley Writers Conference. He's the winner of the Poetry International Prize. He joined us now from Los Angeles, where he moved to recently nearby us here at Rattle. Uh, here he is, Anders Carlson Wee. Uh, hey, Anders, how are you doing? It's great to see you again. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Tim. This is great. Glad to be here. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Yeah, it was really cool to meet you. You came out for the Wrightwood uh, Arts and Wine Festival, so I got to meet you for the first time then. Um, you know, Everybody loved your work and was talking about it afterward, and uh, it's really cool to have you as a California poet. Yeah, glad to, glad to be in the state. Um, let's start out by uh, reading the first poem from the book. You wanted to read Hired, and that's a perfect way to, to introduce it, so let's, let's start with that. Great. Hired. The Grand Am's window rolled down, but it was too dark out to see in. A hand waved me over. A voice asked if I wanted to make some quick cash, standing right where I was standing for the next ten minutes, simple as that. Just stand here, I said. Simple as that, the voice said. 
and the hand stretched out a 20. It was weirdly humiliating doing what I was already doing. Like being told to act natural on camera and sensing that who you are is failing to entertain. 10 minutes passed, 15, 20. I'd never made so much in such little time. Never been so nervous doing nothing. I kept needing the car to come back. Some sign it was over. A horn, a gunshot, the rising pitch of oncoming sirens. I could accept I'd never know what I'd been used for, but I wanted proof it was finished. And that was hired, the opening poem for uh, Disease of Kings, Anders Carlson Wee's newest book. And I have to say, it, it was it's such a great book. Um, you know, I was reading it, you know, all afternoon, and uh, it reminded me of, uh, like, Steinbeck, of Mice and Men or something. It's that kind of relationship between the two characters, um, obviously based on your background in life, but then you built a, a narrative. It, it feels novelesque to read it. You get into these two characters so deeply, um, two very different people who have uh, sort of the same life path, regardless of their differences. Um, how did the book come to be? I mean, we, you know, I think a lot of people know you, you spend a lot of time riding the rails and dumpster diving and, and moving around the country, which is really interesting, too. But why did you decide to make it this kind of uh, narrative like a novel? It's very novelistic. Yeah, well, the process was fairly organic. I didn't set out to do this. I didn't have a, a you know a plan ahead of time, and I, I really believe in that as a writer. That kind of idea of you know no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. That's an old Frost quote, um, and I really believe in that. For me, I found myself uh, drafting poem after poem about my friendship with North. Uh, and something there was really poignant for me. And I felt like, oh, I really want to explore this. It felt like he was coming alive on the page. Um, and I also kind of simultaneously, when I wasn't writing about that, I find I found myself drafting poems about isolation and loneliness and sort of, sort of a desolation kind of headspace. And I slowly started thinking, well, how could I, how could I kind of build a narrative around these, these two impulses that I was feeling? this kind of friendship and then the lack of the lack thereof, you mm -hmm. know, and I started sort of crafting this narrative that is actually, you know, kind of largely based on a lot of events from my twenties, uh, the life I was living at that time. Uh, but of course it's fictionalized to a degree, uh, to create, to sort of dramatize it and mm -hmm. create that narrative. So, so tell us about that, about, uh, you know, how you came to live that lifestyle, which is so unusual. I've, I've never, um, you know, talked to a poet who's lived like that for, for as long as you did. Um, what was it that, that got you on the road? And yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's just such a different way to live that, than we take for granted otherwise, usually. Yeah, the inspiration in a big way came from my grandpa, Roald Carlson, and the, the book is actually dedicated to him. And he, he grew up in Madagascar. He was a missionary child, uh, claims to have not owned shoes until he was like 15 years old. Um, and he grew up in the Depression, a very, very frugal situation that he grew up in. And he maintained that all through his life. He was a Lutheran pastor and was paid very small salaries, humble salaries, and uh, was very eccentric and was known for picking up anything he found on any street corner and finding a way to use it. Um, he was very kind of scrappy. And an early gift from him in my life was uh, I, my bedroom was really hot and he, uh, he found this fan in a dumpster and it was broken. He fixed the wiring and gave it to me as a gift. And I, and I had that fan in my bedroom for many years. And that was his early impressions from him, this idea that you could repurpose things, 
fix them, uh, use them for a fresh purpose. Um, he would always be thinking of ways to use something for something it wasn't intended for, you know, repurpose something. And so that was a big inspiration for me from a young age. Um, also, I grew up as a skater. And I remember I was I was very committed to skating. I skated every day for hours and hours. I was really training and wanted to be a professional. And I remember sitting on the school bus when I was 10 years old and thinking, well, I'm gonna, I want to be a pro skater. That means I probably will never have any money uh, because skaters don't make much. And so I'm going to have to figure out how to sort of scrap for myself and um, I'll do what it takes sort of thing. That was when I was 10. So that, that was implanted in my brain early. And by the time I finished high school, I didn't want to be a skater anymore, but I knew I wanted to have a life in the arts. And so I sort of set out to figure out how to be self-reliant and how to live without money. And so I attended a lot of wilderness survival schools uh, and learned a bunch of primitive skills like trapping, um, tracking, primitive shelter building, uh, fire making with sticks. And sort of ironically at those schools, I met a bunch of anarchist kids who were into hopping the rails, riding the rails mm -hmm. and dumpster diving. And like they knew all these little tricks, like how to ship mail for free and stuff. They had all these little systems. And that was like what I would think of as a set of like urban survival skills. And those actually ended up having a bigger influence on me as I kept aging and, and writing and, and wanting to be a writer. And so during my 20s, I reduced my expenses to about $3,000 a year which just covered my rent, which was very minimal, and then any emergencies that came up. And that was about the only thing I paid for. Mm -hmm. I stopped buying food. I stopped buying clothes. I, I didn't go to cafes or restaurants. I didn't go to anything that cost any money to do. Uh, and so that the lifestyle was actually pretty extreme and pretty limiting, uh, especially in a capitalistic culture where everything costs money, right? Uh, but for me, it was really uh, something I, I wanted to do. I wanted to have free time uh, to be able to pursue reading and writing and that's what I did. I did that for many, many years, more than 10 years. I lived that lifestyle year after year. Um, and that's sort of how I became a poet was was sort of by by myself free time uh, through through this lifestyle of of no money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a contrast to the way we live in this disposable economy with like planned obsolescence everywhere, everything plastic, so much food going to waste and to to live off that. I mean, it was it was surprising in the things that made me think about, you know, and, and the way that, you know, everybody, I think, feels sort of like guilt and shame about how much is wasted. Uh, but to actually take advantage of that waste is, is such a, a, a different way to live. Um, but, but it's interesting, too, that you, you know, started as a skater and then ended up, you know, using those skills to become a poet. What was it that drew you into poetry? Why, why take that path? Yeah, well, I, I grew up the son of two Lutheran pastors. And, so a lot of my childhood consisted of shuffling from my dad's congregation to my mom's and vice versa and sitting in the pews with my brothers and listening to all these sermons. And my parents both preached with like a personal narrative style that was basically focused on marrying uh, uh, events from daily life with the spiritual. And honestly, that's like I, I as a kid, I was trying really hard to ignore everything that was happening at church. Uh, I, I was sort of a rebellious kid. But all that, that use of language and that kind of sacredness of language and the idea of how to tell a story and uh, how to tell a story about normal life, too, and try to give it, give it some vigor or give it some spiritual component, that was all from my parents. And I, I just grew up around that. Uh, so I owe a lot to them. Um, and then, but like I said, I was kind of ignoring it. Uh, and I, I wanted to be a skater. I was very focused on my body and on like physical things, physical activities. And when I went to college, 
uh, I was starting to get more interested in reading and writing, um, but I didn't really know that I would pursue that. And one of the reasons I didn't know I would pursue that is I have dyslexia. And as a kid, it took me a long time to learn how to read and write. Um, and that made me like very distrusting and nervous around te- like of text. Mm. Uh, I was more trusting of things I could hear because I, my, my ears always worked for me, but visually, uh, words would swim. It was very hard to learn how to spell. Uh, I did what was called mirror writing where you write backwards. And if you hold it up to a mirror, it looks correct. Mm. Um, so I had a lot of trouble learning how to read and write. So I felt like I, essentially had like a big weakness in that field and i i still read slowly so i kind of never as a kid i didn't picture myself being able to work with language um but now being older it's easy to like retrospect is 2020 right but like looking back my parents joke with me that i used to be able to memorize huge amounts of text and i used to like watch sitcoms with my parents and then they would quote the dialogue from the sitcom afterwards Mm -hmm. and i would correct them and i'd say no that's not actually what that character said and i would i would like have all the the dialogue memorized Uh, so i think i had an ear for language at an early age without really noticing how much i i was actually being able to take in um and fast forward back to college when i got to college i worked with a poet named mary cornish Uh, her book is red studio which is a lovely book and she was an amazing teacher and really opened up poetry for me kind of like with like within the, a month of her class first month i was like this is it for me i'm gonna do this mm-hmm. and she really opened it up for me and made me realize that i had something to bring to the table and i think something she really was able to drive home was the idea for each of us as her students uh, was that you had something to bring of your own and that you shouldn't conform to trends or to how poetry should be that, but that you should really just like be yourself and figure out what you might be able to contribute. And that was really affirming and it kind of empowering for me. And I realized, well, maybe I could do something with this on my own terms. And that's what really got me going on poetry. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it ties into so many things that we've talked about in past Rattlecast, too, with guests. I mean, a lot of poets have um, parents who are preachers. And I think one of the things we wonder about is if uh, you know, the lack of church attendance now is what makes poetry less popular because we don't have sort of an ear tuned to the rhythms of, of that kind of oral tradition. And, and then, too, uh, you know, the way that, that, you know, humans are just born natural poets through evolution and it's sort of artificial the way we go about doing everything through text now and so to go back to that is such an interesting thing too and there's so much to talk about but i want to read another poem let's do uh the next poem up which is uh footprint you had yeah footprint uh so this one obviously grows out of my dumpster diving life um and uh what else do i need to say oh i'll just read it uh footprint throw away eggs and i make breakfast Plastic, and I weave rugs. Duct tape, and I reinforce a chair leg. Milk cartons, and I plant seeds. Start a nursery. Your torn jacket? It gets hemmed. Busted shades get jimmy-rigged. Throw away tidy cat buckets, and I add hardware. Convert them to rainproof paneers. Your mail? I read it. Your pencils, and I write. Throw away hundreds of pounds of tea, and I draw baths thickened with hundreds of bags of chamomile. Bent nails straighten. Warped wood warps back. Throw away frames, and I frame whatever else you threw away. Paint it on my wall like a portrait. Yeah, and that was a Footprint, another early poem from the book 
uh, Disease of Kings by Anders Carlson Wee. And, uh, and it's just such a different lifestyle. That's a great poem to, you know, explore uh, what you were, how you were living. There's a way that, um, you know, I think you mentioned, you know, having more free time to focus on what you were interested in was the, the reason. But it seems like it's so much effort, too, to, to learn all those skills and to be able to live like that. So uh, is it was it was that sort of true that you found that you had more free time, even though you had to do all that stuff? I mean, you had to find food every day. You had to fix everything that was broken. You had to uh, I mean, there's so much you had to do. Um, was that actually easier than than having a regular job or was it actually harder? Would you say? That's a good question. And I, I feel like I have a two part answer. One is it, it was a lot of work, uh, but the work I was doing was like self-driven. It was this form of like self-reliance. It was kind of on my terms. Um, and I was sort of, you know, choosing my own hours. I'm doing almost all this dumpster diving after midnight. It's sort of this night owl life um, with a lot of creativity and a lot of freedom and a lot of sort of like navigating uh, into a darkness that, you know, I don't really, I didn't have really a chart for it. It was like, figure it out. And that was very exciting to me. Um, and it was a lot of work. I will, I will say it was, but I also will say, yes, I did buy myself a ton of free time, you know, on, on a good night dumpster diving, I would be able to bring home um, as many as $10,000 worth of groceries in one night on oh, wow. a really big night. And certainly a thousand dollars worth of groceries would not be a ridiculous haul. I would I would get a lot of food, and so and, and we're not talking like pizza crusts. You know, we're talking like organic products, like top end meats, top end salmon, uh, the best olive oil from Italy, uh, organic butter. You know, I, I was eating with like this kind of like super abundance and. Um, so for me, it was a diet that there's no way I would have been able to pay for at all, um, and. It was it was something that did buy me the time I wanted uh, and sort of gave me the, the flexibility of schedule, too. So almost all of that work was sort of middle of the night. Uh, and I sort of had my days mostly free, although I, I almost always worked a part time job. I was a personal trainer at the YMCA uh, for almost all my 20s. That was kind of like my my little side job. But it was it was very part time. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a, so interesting to to hear about, um, and and that we would throw away that much, um, you know. I mean, and so how does it affect your life now, where you're not, I assume, not living that lifestyle anymore? Um, how does it affect the way that you live now, having learned all that you did and knowing where all the trash goes? There's one great poem, uh, uh, what I loved about uh, ending up in the trash can, you know, knowing where you would go <laughs> if you had gotten crushed to death there. And, you know, there's so much sort of like knowledge um, of of what we do with our waste that you wouldn't have had. How do you how do you live now with that knowledge? Yeah, I still I still dumpster dive. I love dumpster diving. I don't think I'll ever go away from it. It's very meditative for me. It's something I know a lot about. Um, and it's fun. Uh, but I, it's not I don't do it as, as intensely as I used to or or as or for all my food in that way. And I would say for me, it's been kind of a big personal struggle to sort of let go of that level of extreme frugality. Because anytime I'm buying something, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I know how to do this another way where I could either get this for free or find a way to not need what I'm buying. Uh, and it's like, since it was so pathological for me and for such a long time period, it's very hard to sort of turn that off and say, oh, it's okay to just like buy some socks or <laughs> buy a hand of bananas because I can, I can just see how I could go without it. Mm -hmm. And 
um i guess i have a personality that's pretty drawn to that um and even though it is kind of like it's a hard lifestyle to sustain uh i do kind of like have this part of my brain that still wants to go there yeah it's interesting too i mean talking about being drawn like psychologically to that lifestyle it seems i never thought of this metaphor and wouldn't have but but writing a poem seems kind of like dumpster diving because you have no idea what like grist your subconscious is going to leave for you any night and it must be like a thrill to like you know you mentioned somewhere you know getting you know really expensive salmon and things like that um you know out of that and in like the the possibility that might come out and having no idea what it might be it feels similar to to me maybe is is writing a poem is it the same kind of drive to explore and be surprised yes i find them very related to my mind uh, i think what i'm doing with poetry and with language is basically what i'm doing with resources when i'm dumpster diving is this idea of with language, how can you make language bend and do something new that you have that you haven't seen it do? And how can you have the same body, like a little piece of language, do two or three or four things at once? Mm-hmm. So it's serving multiple purposes for you. And that's as as a writer, I think I'm very engaged with that same headspace mm-hmm. where I'm trying to find ways to turn language. And I'm also trying to be like efficient, like don't waste anything. So this piece of, if I have a line here, I better have a way that this line is working on two or three or four levels. Can't just work on one level. Um, But I also want my poetry to be very clear and simple. So that's another part of the challenge is like, how can this sound almost off the cuff? Like I'm just kind of chatting with you, but also there's all these elements of craft happening. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great uh, explanation of how it works. Um, we have some questions already, and I'll, I'll pass them on. So there's a, a tough one maybe from Nate Jacob, who says, uh, if you live from the flotsam and jetsam of a hyper-capitalism, um, are you not still a participant in that system? Or are you ever conflicted by uh, by the high-end gathering? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I am completely part of the capitalist system uh, with a big underline. Yeah, and certainly the disease of Keynes, uh, the book, is very much delving into that. Uh the, the speaker in this book, who's based on me, is absolutely grappling with shame, embarrassment, confusion about his role. He's sort of trying to escape the system, but is inherently part of it. Um, he's kind of trying to be like this bottom feeder, but in fact, he has a big safety net with his parents being stable and loving, um, which is quite different from his friend North's uh, situation. His friend North is like providing for an alcoholic father and is having on to, having to take on responsibilities that the central speaker does not have to face. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like I, as a dumpster diver, couldn't be more capitalistic in a way. I'm like so invested in the system in a way that's like actually kind of twisted, right? Because for me, like in my perfect world, the dumpsters like wouldn't have anything in them, right? Like that would in a in like the pure part of my brain. At the same time, in the selfish part of my brain, I'm like really happy that there's all this food getting thrown away because I'm getting to eat it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I feel very much part of the the American system. Yeah, but it, but it is true. I mean, if if you weren't if people weren't doing that, it would just completely go to waste. And, and so it's taking you know need off demand off of the uh, the machine of the economy to be doing that. And, you know, and so off, I mean, I keep thinking of, um, you know, a fish tank and there's the, the fish that feed off of the, you know, everything else that's going on in the tank and keeping it clean and, and help out that way. It's really beneficial um, and, you know, much better than just dumping it all in the ocean for uh, for the actual fish to eat, I guess. Um, there is a question to um, uh, Monica Dobos wants to know what you do now. And I kind of assume that you came here to L.A., uh, you know, re- you moved to recently to teach. Uh, but are you teaching somewhere now or what are you doing now? 
I teach online through Pioneer Valley Writers Workshop, uh -huh. which is a great platform if you're looking for classes. They have both like day classes, multi-week classes, and ongoing classes. I'm actually doing an ongoing poetry group that's theoretically year-round, and you can kind of re-up like a subscription every couple months. Um, Pioneer Valley is a great, a great uh, platform to check out. Uh, but no, I moved out here for a few reasons. I'm working on a, a screenplay, and so I'm, I'm kind of like dipping my toes into a bit of Hollywood activity. Um, and that's that's been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, and I, as a writer, if you read my poetry, you can tell I love dialogue and monologues. Mm -hmm. So for me, being able to transfer those, those skills with um, human voice is like very appealing uh, with screenwriting, such a major part of screenwriting. Um, and I'm also out here kind of for like family. I have a lot of family here and my partner's family is here. Um, and then the third reason is that I'm a huge, uh, backpacker and rock climber and the, the landscape out here is like a paradise for me. Uh, mm -hmm. I do a, a lot of outdoor stuff. Yeah. Well, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and two, the, uh, you know, the book really feels like it could be a movie. So it, you know, it reads that way with that kind of, sort yeah, I'm, of narrative I'm actually intensity. hoping, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of hoping it will sell. Uh, I think, I think it could make a really cool movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and too, I didn't think this was a, a tangent we go down, but but teaching online is an interesting thing. Is there a reason you chose that? I was talking to um, Jennifer Jean, who we had on the Rattlecast about a year and a half ago, maybe uh, recently, and she thinks that the MFA program is going to be gone within like five or ten years because it's sort of antiquated and doesn't really make sense for people's lives, and there's no nothing to gain from it. But that online, you know, learning poetry directly from people in workshops is the is the future of actual poetry, and like the MFA system and the AWP is all just going to be gone. Did you feel that way? Is that one of the reasons you did it, or is it more of a convenience? And what has your experience been with that? It was the process was a little organic. I I just uh, uh, really liked and got along with um, Joy Balio, who runs who runs Pioneer Valley, and uh, she seems to, like for me. I think she has a great vision for mm -hmm. for for teaching online and how to make a community uh, that is you know just people in disparate locations, but really bringing them together and making it feel like pretty live. Like I'm, I've been shocked at how real and connective the classes and the readings they do can feel. Mm -hmm. um, but it was something I just wanted to try, you know, and I, and I would say I'm having a really good time with it, enjoying the process, enjoying feeling like it's a bit more on my terms than it would be if I was like pursuing a tenure track on a university kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a bit more in bursts, although this ongoing thing will be more consistent, but so far I've done more in bursts and that's worked for me as I kind of like come in and out of town doing, doing a lot of outdoor trips. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think there's like a lot of future potential for online stuff and for low residency programs, honestly, because I think they work better for people's lives. Um, this idea of ongoing correspondence through zoom, email, et cetera. And then having these moments where you kind of gather like a little cloud city mm -hmm. where you come together and you do your thing for a set of days and it's like very intense and exciting and exciting. And then you go back home, you know, and you return to your life or your career or whatever. And I think that's a good model. I think it's going to keep expanding. Yeah, I mean, that's what Jennifer was saying. I mean, she was in our adjunct poets issue. Um, and she was, you know, going from university to university, you know, chasing the tenure, but, but, but teaching at like four different schools at the same time. And she said once she moved, she was just shocked at how much more productive and fun and just the whole thing, the energy was so much better than the college system. And, uh, and it makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah, I feel that, I feel yeah. that way, too. 
Yeah. Well, uh, let's uh, let's read another poem. And uh, and I should say, too, if anybody is watching and I know like 100 people are or more, uh, please uh, click the like button and stuff. There's uh, it always helps out. It helps out people uh, appear in the search windows and all that. Uh, I think we're going to read cups next. Let, let's. Yeah, that yeah. Yeah. And everybody should so, pay yeah, special cups. attention to this uh, poem. Hint, hint. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, so this is kind of growing out of my childhood. I grew up in northern Minnesota where the winters are super extreme. We're talking negative 40 wind chills and like average temperature of like negative 15. So very cold climate. Um, And this is a poem kind of drawing on like my early mindset around frugality uh, that I, I had from, I think, from the start. So this one's called Cups. Hovering near the line, I watch a lady order coffee and ask for a second empty cup. But once she has the cup in hand, she thinks better of it and, leaving, drops it in the trash. I know about cups. They're trees, ground to a pulp and coated with thin skins of plastic, not unlike condoms, that make recycling impossible. In ninth grade, I kept a Subway cup in my locker and cradled it each day at lunch beneath my coat as I trudged through sub-zero winds and gusting snows to the franchise, where I'd blend in with the crowd who'd already ordered, then step boldly toward the soda fountain, which was patrolled by the staff, and fill my cup with Sprite, Dr. Pepper, Mellow Yellow, Cherry Coke, making what we called a graveyard. I had the cup so long, I named him, bathed him daily at the drinking fountain near the gym, and I never let his lip get torn or pinched. What stopped all this was Subway updating its logo, Instantly, my cup looked old and wrong, and I couldn't keep making my graveyard unless I was willing to switch to a new cup, which I was and did. Yeah, and that was Cups, again, uh, by Anders Carlson Wee from his new book, Disease of Kings. And, uh, and I think, I don't know if people can notice at home, but you're reciting these poems. You're not actually looking at anything. And, and that's how you did it when you were at the Wrightwood Arts and Wine Festival, too, up here. Um, and, and I kind of assumed that it was just something that you did as a performer, but it sounds like, like it has more to do, you know, with the way you encounter poetry. So, so it makes me wonder what your process is like in the writing of it. Um, do you write sort of audially, you know, as you speak and then transcribe that later? How is your, what's your writing process like on that level? Yeah, uh, I, I definitely do that. It, it, it's a little hard to articulate uh, exactly what's happening. But basically, when I'm sitting down to write, I, I basically hear the language in my head. And then writing it down is almost like I feel like a scribe, like taking dictation of, of my own like musical headspace. Um, and so writing it down is kind of like this afterthought. Uh, but I'm, he- I'm hearing whole, whole pieces of language in my head and, and finding the meter, finding the rhythm. Um, and then I'm putting it down on paper as kind of like a blueprint of what I'm hearing. Um, and then once I have a poem drafted, I'll work on it for a while on the page, read it again, read it again, work on it again, always kind of seeking an oral quality though. And then once I have it far enough along, then I memorize it and I, I do the rest of the editing on walks and I go on walks and I, and I recite the poem. And if I'm having trouble remembering part of it, I really interrogate that part. And I say, why is this part hard to remember? Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it because there's like a tongue twisting element of language or am I getting too dense here? Um, Do I have three images where I could have one and do the same job? Uh, So there there becomes these questions of efficiency and of like kind of tonal smoothness. 
and of kind of rhythmic uh, both consistency and breaking rhythm, right? Like how, the rhythm of that, when to ri- when to maintain and when to break, uh, and and how to track the breath. And and for me, my poetry is very tied to my own breath, wanting to it to be natural for me and for me to be able to say my lines without losing my breath, you know, mm-hmm. kind of keeping to my own breath rhythm. Um, so I edit toward that. And then once I have a full manuscript, uh, I've, I've written, you know, the two books, Low Passions and Disease of Kings. And once I have a full manuscript, then I memorize the whole book. And then I go on walks, reciting the whole thing. And that helps me decide the order of the poems hmm. and kind of like feel the musical movements um, and st- sort of start feeling, you know, where where's the rhythm? Is there too much consistency? Is there enough variation? Things like that. Uh, so once I have the book kind of finalized, I, I know the poems pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the because uh, I do the same thing, except you're like the next level up. But people were always like, when I had the book, you know, in doing readings, it was always like, uh, you know, surprised that you could read the poem. And I was sort of surprised that it was surprising because it's almost it just sounds like a a song, you know, like you, you, no one's like, oh, you you know that whole Taylor Swift song, right. <laughs> you know, but but you do because it's like there's a music to it. And, uh, right. and I think yeah. I think there's for me, there's maybe I would argue to a small degree that like if you're interested in that, you will shape your writing a little bit toward that oral quality. Mm-hmm. I think there's certain types of text that might be like really hard to memorize all of it if it was just not looking for rhythm, for example, or not not trying to rely on some of those traditional structures of rhythm that allow language to kind of be memorizable. Mm-hmm. Um but that said, you can pretty much memorize anything if you really wanted to. Uh-huh. Uh, and it, for me, honestly, half of it is because of my dyslexia. It's it's um, more intimidating for me to look up and down at a piece of paper mm-hmm. because yeah. each time I look down, there's this like I have this fear that the text is going to start swimming in, with my eyes because it just it, it's a little hard to know when it might happen for me. Mm-hmm. And um, when I if I just know the poem and I can recite it, I, I, I actually, in a sense, feel more confident because I, I just know I have it. And I also like the feeling of having them in my body mm-hmm. so that it's not like I'm reading off paper, translating to my head and then translating back out to, to you, the audience. It's more like, no, it's just right here and I'm sending it out. And it, it feels very like more organic or something. And it feels more like I can feel the emotions while I'm saying the poem mm-hmm. from more of like a natural place. Uh, so I feel more connected to the work if I have it memorized. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. I noticed too, uh, that you, you don't make any changes too. I, Robert Pinsky was on about a year ago and he likes to jazz every poem, you know? So every time he reads it, it's a little different and he just kind of like riffs on it. But, but for you, it feels more like somebody, you know, who has the studio album and you're on the tour and you know these songs, you know? And yeah, I do. Ever, I do know them. Uh-huh. I do know them. But I will say, I say there's a few lines that I say different aloud on purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's not an accident. I actually, I know what they're like on the page. And there's a few lines that I change a little bit because I think it sounds better aloud. Mm-hmm. And that's just a choice I made along the way to like emphasize certain phrases. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but anyway, you'll probably notice that if you're <laughs> if you're watching the text. Yeah, well, very interesting. Um, and I want to talk about that poem, Cups, too. So how does a poem like that come to be? Like, I'm the really, like, I'm a poet. I want to write a poem. Um, I'm sitting down in front of the blank page. Um, how do you come up with that poem? Where does that idea to write the poem about come from? And then I, I, f- I can sort of sense that it's a sort of organic music way that it develops from there. But, like, how do you get the inspiration for a poem like that? Yeah, there's sort of like a almost phantom 
little narrative at the beginning of that poem because the opening line is uh, hovering near the line. I watch a lady wear coffee, right? And so where I'm at in my adult life in that moment was that like I'm sort of up to my old tricks from childhood. I've got a cup and I'm going to sneak in for some free beverage at a place, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like doing that just for kicks kind of for fun. And it was one of those moments where I was kind of in the process of doing that to try to like get a free beverage. And I, I noticed this woman get asked for this cup and throw it away. And to me, it was just this like funny, funny moment of like, oh, this cup means like nothing to her. And to me, it, it like there's like there was like this gravity of like, oh, that that cup's actually like worth something because mm -hmm. you can get you can like get a beverage with it. Right. And it, it immediately shot me back to my childhood uh, when I had that subway cup, because that, that's a that's a true part from my life that I had this subway cup that I maintained because it was in that era. I don't know if they still do it everywhere, but if you had your cup, it was like free refills. Right. Because theoretically, you bought it that day. So, but I just just kept my cup and brought it every day. And they, and it was like, the, they always thought I was getting free refills or whatever. That was kind of the idea. Um, so for me, it just sent me down this like wormhole of how important an individual cup could be uh, like an individual throwaway paper cup. Right. And it made me start thinking about like, Oh, this is like this completely random sort of capitalist product that is mass produced in like the billions just so that everybody can like use it quickly and toss it. And yet there's this kind of perspective where like, oh, possessing one of these cups could actually be like valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, and I liked the contrast there. So I just started digging into it uh, and started kind of writing about it. And then for me, somewhere early on, I thought of the line, uh, I know about cups. And for me, that line was somehow like, it just felt like it kind of ignited some part of my imagination. And I kind of just like went from there. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, Paul Mitchell Bernstein says uh that they eliminated that policy because of Anders. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. It's all over thanks to me. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Uh, let's let's hear another poem, and we're getting into the the monologues too. So the next one up is Lou. Yeah, yeah. So the section two of Disease of Kings. Um, there's sort of a the, this book has a narrative uh, through line that's like quite linear, uh, and in the progression of the book, um, the speaker and his friend North are living together. They're doing this lifestyle of dumpster diving, etc. Uh, and then North uh, takes seasonal work fishing in Alaska. And so he's left for the summer and the speaker is home alone and, and realizing how dependent he is on North uh, emotionally. And to kind of fill the void, he rents out North's bedroom as a bed and breakfast. And in that section, you get these dramatic monologues from the guests who are coming to stay at this bed and breakfast. And it's kind of this weird bed and breakfast because he's serving them dumpstered food in the morning. Uh, but of course, they don't know that this food is from the trash. So there's like some comedy built in. Uh, and this first one is is Lou. And he's the he's the first guest and he's in town uh, to bet on horse races. You don't start at zero. You start way below zero. You got your gas money admission. You grab a dog and a beer and hit the ATM, which takes a not so small feat. By the time you set eyes on horses, you're down 30, 40 bucks and you haven't even placed a bet. I started coming when my wife died. She wouldn't marry a gambler. So after her funeral was my first chance in 47 years. Oh, I don't bet a lot of money. If you don't bet a lot, you can't make a lot. But you can stay in it. Some guys, they hit the pick three and the superfecta. Those guys are gods. Not me. I just work the chalk and try to stay out of the red. To tide me over, my wife used to let me bet chocolate chips. 
We'd watch the races on TV and place our bets in bowls. She'd tease me for playing it safe. Loosen up, she'd say. Then she'd put it all on here is happy to win. She loved that horse. She'd lose, of course, and go make cookies with her losses while I worked the chalk. After 47 years of that, it's hard to remember I'm betting real money, losing real money. When I win, I remember. I can tell you that much. Ah, I'll never be a god. But I'm still here. The only god I ever met in person was my wife. No bullshit. She hit the superfecta one time. Filled her bowl on four horses and named the order, the exact order, one, two, three, four. And she won. After we stopped shouting and cussing and jumping up and down, we did a little two-step right there on the living room rug. And at the end, I even dipped her. She had red hair for miles. It was beautiful. And that was uh, Lou, the, the first monologue from the middle section of the book, uh, Disease of Kings. And uh, Michael Mayerhofer says, oh, good line breaks. And that's something I was wondering about, too. Given how um, oral you are in the creation of the poems and the presentation of your poems, like, what is your philosophy on line breaks and how they're presented on the page? Yeah, um, for me, line breaks are really important because it's like, look, in a way, I like my poems aloud the most, and I kind of feel like that's really what they're designed for. But at the same time, there's so many so many opportunities for readers to encounter it on the page. And I, I totally honor that and like want to do my best to like present the poems in a way that I, I find them appealing mm-hmm. and accessible and kind of like available to you. Um, with line breaks, I... You know, I spend a lot of time on them. Um, but for me, it's kind of like if I have built, if I'm building a house and I've done this, you know, I've done the basement, I've done the scaffolding work, I've built the rooms, I've done everything. And then finally, it's time to like start hanging curtains. That's kind of how I think of line breaks. It's like, it's important because it's like, hey, how the curtains look in the kitchen is going to like really matter. But it's kind of like coming near the end. And it's, it's like more of a decorative gesture. Um, but I want it to be right. Um, so I, I do work on line breaks a lot. I don't think I have like one philosophy about how to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for me, I'm looking for a balance of, um, clarity. Uh, so sometimes I'm breaking the line just where it's going to be clearest or represent the rhythm best. Other times I'm looking for something more surprising or even intentionally jarring where you're breaking, um, a modifier away from its noun or something like that. Um, but I'm looking for a rhythm with that. So I, I, w- I wouldn't want to constantly do one or the other, uh, partly because I don't want to confuse readers or throw them off with, with sort of too much chaotic line breaking. But also I kind of feel like there's a rhythm there in art where if you do enough consistent consistency, then you can surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you do either too much of one or too much of the other, you lose both. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just curious, like on a personal level, because I when I write like that, which is the majority of the time, I write out in a paragraph like because it, it's the sound. I'm just writing down the sound. And then I spend so much time longer than it took to write shaping the poem into a way to make that sound come across. And like, you know, it, it's interesting if you look through the, the poems in the book, they feel I mean, the lines are a certain length. There's a consistency to that. But they still which is always the sort of. Um, the I don't know. This the, the hardest part about it is to end with a line that's still like that, <laughs> you know. Because if you're breaking it through a paragraph, you know, and then I'm like, oh, I'm going to have lines this long, and then you end up with like a word dangling at the end. Um, that's always an annoyance. It, is that is that how you shape a poem too? Do you do you write it down that way and then just play back and forth with the length of the lines and the the lengths of the stanzas? 
it, the the initial length of lines feels like it has a lot to do with the breath rhythm of the poem mm -hmm. and some of my poems have slightly longer breath and some have slightly shorter but i don't ever go for like i don't have like a huge breath so mm -hmm. i don't feel like I, I ever have poems that are like really long lines um but also i'm doing a narrative style uh that's kind of like has a lot of like connect the dots to it so i also don't use like tiny lines you know where you'd have like a like monosyllable words stacked mm -hmm. uh because i kind of feel like well my poems are really trying to stitch things together um so i kind of find a, a sort of midline tends to work and then at that stage it kind of just depends on the poem in terms of how how long the breath sort of feels mm -hmm. to me and i start shaping from there uh, and for me, the, the, the rhythms of the, of the, how it's going to sound aloud is more important to me. Uh, so that will almost always take precedent, mm -hmm. uh, over a line break. Um, but also sometimes, uh, clarity is more important to me than, per than like getting the rhythm that how it would be perfect musically. Mm -hmm. So I have a few poems where I've edited out what I thought was the perfect music to introduce perfect clarity. And then when I read it aloud, I can hear it every time I can hear like the kind of like musical bend, mm -hmm. but for me, it's important to have clarity and if i feel like i'm going to lose the reader i, I really don't want that yeah well it's interesting to put so much attention into each poem which you clearly do uh, let's hear the next one uh another another monologue oscar yeah oscar so this is the final tenant uh, the final guest at the bed and breakfast oscar fuck no she didn't leave me over money she left me because i have no ass it's true a belt holds on my hips about as good as an oiled-up pole dancer. That's why I invented these strapless suspenders. Can't see them, can you? Good. That's the idea. Almost went bankrupt making the prototype. My wife kept saying, what suspenders? You ain't wearing nothing. But riddle me this. Are my jeans pulled at my feet? I swear, bonafide genius dumbfounds belief with simplicity. Same goes for the truth. Like if I told you... My wife left me because I got less milkshake than a garter snake. You'd say, mm, there's got to be more to that story. Like what? I go to work one day and come back home to no trace of her. No photos. No toothbrush. Not even the carrots she raised in the garden beds. Just holes in the earth like buckshot where she plucked them free. And of course, she got custody. And the house eventually. Which, I'll admit... I mortgaged to pay for the patent. You think that was the dagger? I mean, here I am working to cure Otto Pantson for the assless, and she's fussing over a little loan? Yes or no? Could I win her back if I doubled down and got those silicone implants? Fine. Shake your head. But I don't think you respect how bad it is when God forgets to blow up your balloons. Hell, I'd show you. But these suspenders, they're a bitch to get back into. And that was Oscar, again, from Disease of Kings. And that, that's the poem from Rattle, uh, Rattle Summer Issue. And uh, we just love the humor in that. There's just not enough humor in poetry. And that was a really fun one to, to read and get to share. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about doing these monologues and assuming the identity of someone else? I had someone else, I won't say who on the Rattlecast, who said uh, that they used to love writing persona poems, but then they feel like they don't you know, have the permission or like the authority to write in someone else's voice now. And they find them like 
you know, problematic or difficult until they stopped writing them. And, and I felt to me that felt a sad thing, you know, but, uh, but what is your perspective on that? Do you, do you find any hesitation to, to assume the identity of someone else? And, and two, I assume that these are based on archetypes of people you've met too. Uh, but, but maybe you can answer that question in the process too. Yeah. I'll answer that in the process. Um, I guess, I guess my two cents on that is uh, if, if I'm offering the advice uh, personally, I'd say, dude, go to town. You, you sh- everybody should write anything they want to write. It doesn't mean it's going to work. And it also doesn't mean there's, there's not going to be consequences potentially. You know, people might react. People might say this doesn't sound real. This doesn't sound natural. Uh, people might say, how dare you? You're a, you're a woman. You took on a man's perspective or vice versa. Um, that's all real. You know, you, you, you might get that, that pushback or whatever from our current culture. Um, and that, you know, it's kind of comes with the territory, uh, as being a writer in general. Um, but absolutely. I mean, you you know, writers should, should, uh, and from my perspective, should try anything they, they feel they, they want to try to try to find something that feels true and creative and interesting. That's what we do, right? That's what artists are. Um, we have these impulses to try to create something imaginative. And uh, hopefully it works. Hopefully it speaks to people. If it doesn't, nobody needs to read it. It can, it can trail away into dust, and that's fine, too. Uh, you could still have fun working on it. As far as my own monologues, like this one, Oscar, I just read, uh, it might be worth knowing for people to start picturing what it's like to create one of these characters. For me, I drafted more than 20 monologues in Oscar's voice. Mm-hmm. So I, I have this whole catalog of Oscar poems. And I know everything about his life. I know his situation. I know what diseases he has. I know you know, his backstory, his childhood, where he's from, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I have a lot of jokes from him that aren't in this. He's obviously a huge jokester. And I drafted all these poems to finally arrive at this one. And this one felt like this is really Oscar. This is the one that works for the book. Uh, this is the one that I think is really funny and really like pulls together his sense of humor in a good way. Um, but for me, I guess as a writer, what I'm saying is I know way more about Oscar than I'm giving you as a reader, right? So you're only getting this like tip of the iceberg that is hopefully kind of the gem, the, the piece that's working. Um, but I know a lot more about Oscar and spent a lot of time creating his character and I guess that's the same maybe part of the challenge uh, to offer up to other writers or to young writers who are watching is to say, look, do this, but like really go after it, you know, really take some time, develop the voice, develop the psychology. If they're telling jokes, what types of jokes, uh, if they're really, you know, severe and sober, why are they severe and sober? Find the voice, find, find the character and know a lot about your character, feel invested, you know, that's how I think about it. Uh, and so for me, Oscar is someone that I know well, even though he's a, a figment of my imagination. And sort of to speak to that last question you had, how much is this based on real people? I would say uh, it's m- mostly figments of my imagination. Like some of the some of the rhythm, rhythmic qualities of voice will be from a person. And how I do that as a, a writer is kind of like using Fra- Robert Frost's sound of sense idea, which is kind of like if you just hear the rhythm of someone talking without knowing what language they're even saying. Like the the image of that that Frost uses is like hearing someone through a door that's in the next room and all you can hear is the rhythm, but you can't hear the words they're saying. I use that to try to like catch the rhythm. Like how does someone talk? What rhythm do they use? How staccato is it? When do they pause? How long is their breath, et cetera, et cetera. And then I kind of cobble a bunch of qualities together. Some things are from people I've met. Some things are from personal friends. But I'm cobbling together like a, a huge palette of colors and textures 
by the time it's finished, it, it's, it doesn't resemble any individual person by any means. It's mostly an imaginative act. And that's how I do it. Uh, I find it very compelling. But honestly, I don't, I don't like pre-plan the characters. I hear their voices in my head in kind of this organic way. And I don't, I don't know why I do. I don't know if other people experience that. Uh, but I hear, I hear these people kind of talking to me. And I kind of start writing down what they say. And then, of course, I'm shaping it. I shape, I shape it for craft to, to no end. I mean, I don't know if I've ever finished a poem in less mm -hmm. than a year. I spend a lot of time on each poem. Oh, wow. I go back to it, back to it, back to it. Um, uh, so by the end, it's heavily crafted. But the the voice is kind of like something coming to me as if I'm like a bridge that that's like hearing this voice. Um, and I don't totally know how that works. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's some kind of imaginative act. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. Will you use Oscar again? I'm reminded talking about of uh, to Ron Kirchie. I had Ron Kirchie on, and he was talking about how when he writes a novel, he has this whole map of the entire town that he's made up, and every house has like every character and a character sketch, and 99.9% .9 of them never end up in the novel. But he needs that map and to know like whose house is across the street from who in order to get his uh, his book going and feel like a real place to him. Is that like this? Are you only using Oscar for this, or is there? I mean, there it seems like sounds like there could be. A a whole book of oscar too yeah my partner anessa thinks i should do a whole oscar book <laughs> yeah. i mean she she likes she likes oscar she thinks i should dig in and you know kind of like expand it but i i'm very similar in that way i i do maps i love maps so i so like for disease of canes i have a map of where these guys live and like what's nearby and how close are they to the mississippi river because that comes into play in the book there's all those elements um yeah, I try to know a lot about my characters, and and for me, like space, like things like maps, spatial things are really actually pretty creative for me. They kind of generate my thoughts, mm -hmm. so I definitely use spatial maps, and I, I recommend that if you're trying to kind of build a world. Yeah, um, uh, Nate Jacob, it's just a great comment. He always has them. He says uh, poetry's identity crisis will forever be driven by the assertion that poetry belongs in the nonfiction section. <laughs> We're free to invent. Yes, dude, yeah. I, I agree with that issue, right? Like, I don't, I don't know why people want poetry to like have that that idea this this idea of nonfiction. uh it seems like there's sort of a range to to like opinion but that does in america at least that does seem like a pretty common mm -hmm. uh assumption and uh i i sort of couldn't disagree more i mean poetry can be whatever you want it to be uh, and it can certainly draw on nonfiction elements but also i mean this is a different conversation but i don't even think nonfiction is nonfiction. so <laughs> that's another conversation no it definitely yeah for for sure and and there's something i think uh, to me, there's there's a difference between truth and facts, you know. And if you're writing in pursuit of truth, it doesn't matter what the facts are because there's there's something bigger going on, a, a sort of an archetypal uh, level of reality that you're talking about, where you know facts can be true within a specific moment and instance and context, but then completely false everywhere else. And so there's nothing, um, you know, it, it's just a different thing to do. And so to go through and and make a world as long as you're pursuing the reality the truth that you're trying to speak i think that's the thing that matters that's what matters for sure uh, well let's keep the poems coming i want to make sure we get to all the ones you wanted to share uh, next up is the family yeah good so this one draws on um something i used to do a lot in my 20s which was um kind of like hang out at like grocery store uh, sometimes grocery stores have like those little diners or like eating areas things like that or in like a proper cafe diner uh, I would like hang out and watch for people who are finishing meals who are going to get up and leave and they're going to leave behind like half a meal. And then I would like, like rush, rush in and, and uh, scoop up the rest. So this, this poem's kind of drawing on some of that personal experience. The family. 
In perfect synchrony with the family, rising from the booth and laughing their way toward the door, I ditch my coffee on the counter and slide in where they've been. I wolf the father's Reuben and move to the daughter's grilled cheese. I make quick work of melted milkshakes, no looking up to see if I'm seen. And although I'm counting each second it takes to pound the leftover plates, at the end of it, I wipe my lips with a cloth napkin and linger, letting myself imagine a wife and kids gone on a trip to the bathroom, hot water running as she scrubs Mrs. Butterworth's from their fingers, fixes their hair. The waitress comes for dishes, too involved in her own life to notice I don't have the right clothes, the right face. Yes, I say, we're finished. And that was The Family, again, from Disease of Kings. And uh, it's interesting that the chat is so good today that I'm like having to not do any work. Uh, Mark Grinier says, uh, interesting that clarity should be a driving force. We were talking about that before. I think it ties into the last question, too. But uh, that clarity should be a driving force in the poems when so much of modern poetry seems to be moving away from it. How important is clarity compared to, say, sound or deeper meanings for you? Yeah, for me, I think of poetry this way. I think clarity can actually if you like actually have some good clarity that can actually get to the deeper mysteries um i'm not that interested in sort of like poetry that obfuscates its its obvious intentions and those kind of become the mysteries and we're kind of like trying to decipher just the initial elements of the poem i don't find that as compelling as actually being pretty straightforward and having like some clarity on what this poem is about what the topics are uh, what's at stake. And then I feel like that actually opens up windows into larger mysteries and bigger questions. Uh, so at least that's how I try to design my poems. Mm -hmm. And so I guess there's maybe like a twofold element where I want them to be quite accessible on like an initial point of access or initial hearing. But I hope that they actually have like quite a bit of gravity behind them and can kind of offer up larger questions and like reach toward deeper mysteries. At least that's what I hope. Yeah, well, it, it seems to me that a lack of clarity so often, you know, fills in and sort of covers up the, the lack of something to say, you know, like we have this, yeah. uh, this way of it really, go, it plays into the disease of kings and, and the capitalism and the, the need to pump out everyone's be professor and it's like publish or perish, you know, you're only as good as your last poem and your last book. And so we keep cranking these out, even though we're sort of out of things to say very often. Um, and then so that the obscurity can cover up for the fact that we really don't have anything new to say. Um, how do you avoid that problem, like being clear, um, but but yet still having something worth saying? Is it like, you know, you write 50 poems and one you realize had something behind it? Or are you good at listening to, to where the, uh, the, the poem comes from that has some kind of deeper meaning that you're driving toward? Uh, how does that work where you still have something to say? Yeah, you kind of nailed it on the head, Tim. What I do is I draft a ton of poems. I, I, I'm a workhorse, so I, I put in like on a, if I'm in my good rhythm, I do like four hours every every day writing, um, and I, I draft a poem, draft a poem, draft a poem. I keep drafting, and then I finally start choosing ones that I think are sort of most effective. And often, what that means is by the by the time I've done, I call it the accordion method. I kind of like draft a bunch, and then I compress and push out all the crap, and then I do it again. I draft from fresh and push it out again. And I keep doing that and keep getting rid of all the, the excess. Um, and often what I'm finding, it, it, once I have a lot of poems drafted, is, oh, I'm, I'm seeing that I have these certain impulses. And there's four or five poems that are all trying to kind of get at this one thing. 
So which one's the best? Which draft is the best draft of these five or six that's really worth now pursuing and trying to make as best that I can? And then I sort of look around and see that I have these clumps. And of the cl of each clump, I pick the best. And then once I've done that, I have all these like best ofs. And then I do it all over again and get rid of most of those too. Hmm. Like with the Low Passions, that book, that book has 53 poems in it. And I drafted 1,500 poems, almost 1,500 toward that book. And like that, just to like make clear, that's mostly just first draft, didn't try to push them further. But what that meant is I just kept going, kept developing the world, kept developing the threads of character, connectivity, et cetera. And then I finally just picked 53 poems to put in the book. Hmm. And with Disease of Canes, I don't know the numbers, but this, this book has 39 poems in it. And I drafted way, 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 way more, uh, including like the, you know, the 20 plus for just getting the one poem Oscar. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would highly recommend that to other uh, writers. I know everyone doesn't, you know, have that kind of workhorse personality. Some people more like want to like feel that inspiration and it comes right now. Um, and that, you know, it's like that's another process and it can certainly work. For me, I just I really like writing. I like spending time with my poems. And if you like that, I would highly recommend learning how to kill your darlings, uh, to use a phrase, you know, that gets used. I think that really is important to be able to say, I really do have to let go of these poems that just aren't as good. And it, that takes time to figure out. And you can't I don't think you can do it totally alone. I go to readers. Um, I, I have close readers that I feel like I trust. And I have them read. And also I say, here's a clump. Which one is the best of these five? And I have them pick the best one and I see what various responses uh, and usually they align. You know what I mean? Usually people start seeing which ones are the best. Once in a while I have a quarrel where a close friend of mine thinks, thinks something isn't good and I think it is and I'll fuss about it and fume and kind of say they don't, you know, in my head I'll be like, they don't know what they're talking about. And then by the time I've like fumed about it, I realize that they've got something to that they will actually have a good point. Mm -hmm. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, I think I've interviewed probably 300, 350 poets maybe in my life. And you are the most maximalist, like work every poem and work it and work it, work it that I've ever talked to. And it makes me think about what your, your goal, you know, as a poet is like, like what is the thing that you're trying to do by putting out books? Obviously no one's going to get rich publishing books, even, you know, you're on a great press Norton, but you're not going to like, you know, earn a living for a year off the book probably. And, uh, and, and so, you know, what is it that you're trying to do and, and putting out the poems, you know, and working each poem so hard um, makes it so it's something that's I mean, it's really the, the, the densest sort of richest collection of poems I've read in a while. Um, and, and I think that's because of how much work you put into it. And maybe is standing the test of time the thing you're really after, maybe? You know, honestly, I just really love love poetry. I love doing it. I love reading my favorite poems. Um, and I feel like I have something to offer in, in this, in this, you know, part of humanity. Uh, I think I have a skill set that isn't necessarily perfect for poetry, but, but kind of gets close where there's certain things in my brain that align and, and allow me to pursue this. I mean, you know, one of the issues with being a human is that ultimately you're trying to find a way to direct skills and personality quirks that shouldn't need to fit in a box in a way, but in, in a sense, you, you try to find something that can work for you and kind of help you blossom as best that it can. And for me, poetry is one of those zones where I feel like I, I feel like it's helping me blossom pretty well and that I have something to share. Um, and it's like an impulse, you know, I, I don't, I don't think there's, there's, there's not a good enough logic for anything based on, yeah, like income or something practical like that. It's a, it's a much deeper drive 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just love language and I, I love trying to get something that feels right, you know, that feels correct. And I feel that with my own poems sometimes, but it's, you know, as a reader, you know, your own work can kind of be confusing to know how to feel about because it's yours and you're too close to it. But when I read a favorite poem of mine and I get to like a favorite line, for me, it's just like this feeling like this is so correct on some level that's way beyond like the idea of fact and fiction or anything like that but this sort of like truthfulness that's somehow expressing like an idea it's catching a rhythm that's so lovely um i guess another word to use would be beautiful it's just so beautiful Mm -hmm. to me and um that's something i would hope to at least be part of uh not that my poems will necessarily rise to the test of time but just that to even have been part of it is is special to me Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Uh, we we're coming up on time a little bit, but let's do, as long as you don't mind saying extra for like 10 minutes, can we do no, Living Alone, then one more question, then uh, the last poem? And I should say, if anybody, you know, one last shot for a question for Anders, if anyone wants to post one last. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. Why don't you do Living Alone? Living Alone. Another day of not seeing anyone but the faces on TV. For company, I record my impressions of celebrities and play them back. But the voices don't sound like them and don't sound like me. I peel an orange and smell my hands. I read portions of a mystery in different rooms to make it feel like different things are happening. The longer I'm alone, the smaller a gesture could be and still console or rattle me. Strange to need so little, but to need it so badly. I step into the air conditioning of Target and ask after brands I know they carry just to hear someone say yes. And that was Living Alone by uh, Anders Carlson Wee from Disease of Kings. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, we haven't mentioned it, the title on Disease of Kings, which is the uh, colloquialism for gout. Um, and, and how did you, you know, because people are talking about in the chat windows too, um, how do you come about upon that as a metaphor for the whole book? It is, it's such a p- fitting thing, uh, which you can kind of explain why in the process, but. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, basically, that was, once again, like a very kind of luck of the draw organic process. I was writing so much about my relationship with my friend North and, of course, fictionalizing that relationship. But I, but I was drawing on my real life. And it was just one of those things that was just a real part of my friendship with North was that he has gout and suffers from it and uh, would have these, you know, pretty extreme bouts uh, or that where the gout would really act up. And so I ended up drafting a fairly long poem about that. That's called gout. And I had drafted that poem and the poem includes a line where it mentions that, that this, this gout is, is nicknamed disease of canes. And I'd already drafted that poem uh, and was actually reciting it to myself on one of my outings where I was working on the poems and I was reciting that one to myself. And suddenly that phrase disease of Cain's kind of leapt, leapt out at me in my brain. And I kind of suddenly felt, Oh wait, this, this could really be like this wonderful metaphorical phrase for so much of what this collection is. It speaks to, you know, there's this kind of irony that these two kind of 20 something kids in, in living in America uh, can get so much food from the trash and such good quality, rich, fatty food that uh, one of them has come down with the disease of canes, mm. right? There's this kind of irony there, but it also speaks to uh, many other elements of the book. And, you know, there's no need to really like 
harp on each one of them. I mean, they're there, but certainly American consumption, this disease of consumption, and also this kind of disease of uh, loneliness, right? Uh, lo lonely, lonely to be a, a king on the throne in a way. And the speaker of this book is by no means a king on any throne, but he's experiencing a, a form of like isolation and loneliness that uh, that I think this title resonates with. Yeah, and that is one thing we haven't mentioned, um, but is a big theme in the book is loneliness. And it feels like lo there's a loneliness epidemic in, in our culture right now. Like we don't know how to interact with each other anymore. Um, is there anything, you know, is poetry a way for you to, to find something in the loneliness? Is, is that part of what drives you to poetry? And, and what do you just what do you have to say about about loneliness and, and what's going on with so many people? Because it's it's everywhere. Yeah, loneliness has been a really big part of my life. I, I've um, always been a pretty big loner. Like in, in high school, for example, I wouldn't have wanted to talk about it at the time. But in high school, I ate lunch by myself every day, like down under a staircase mm -hmm. in, in the bottom of the high school because I didn't really have any friends. And I was a skater and I had skater friends, but they didn't go to my high school. And so I, I kind of didn't know how to sort of like conform to make life easy. Uh, for myself socially and I think that was something that was almost accidental but then almost like turned into this whole way of being where like I really am resistant to conforming um, and being part of groups is difficult for me so I experience a lot of loneliness and I think it's somehow like it is I think it is like especially ramped up in America we're so kind of boxed into our own things and like it does seem like loneliness is like at a, at a high pitch but I do think it's kind of somehow a basic implicit human condition where regardless of you, know, you have family around, you have friends around, some part of yourself feels like alone. I think for I think in, for most people, there's some there's some part of you that feels kind of desolate and and like you can't express, you know, if only I could share kind of feeling. And I do think poetry is a place to go to for like that kind of lonely part of your soul where you can read other people sort of expressing their privacies and you can feel that privacy for yourself and you can say sort of yes to that. Even though it doesn't mean that other people understand you, you can kind of share that that lonely space that with, with other poets, with other writers uh, when you read books. I, and I think that's a special quality and maybe pro of poetry in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, too. I always think of that uh, Rilke quote that, that love is two solitudes that touch. And, and, you know, in, in a reading a poem is two solitudes touching, you know, and, and that's really what it feels yeah. like to me. And so it, it really ties into everything we've been talking about, too. Uh, let's close out with one last poem, uh, which is the, a poem toward the end, uh, Lay It Bare. Yeah, Lay It Bare. I know you're hungry for it. More money, more news. Desperate for any laurel that parades you as happier than you know you are. A car, a cruise some haircut reeking so deeply of depression no one with a nose could miss it making more each year spending more the pride of how little time you have to spare i know i embarrass you still living on expired food i find dented tuna i squirrel away spending at a pace slower than a pulse slow that's what i have I'm not happy either. I walk past bars where flush people drink, markets where I dumpster what I eat, down streets quiet enough to hush the last ten years, parks dark enough to find Gemini, Lyra. I don't wish you were poor. 
I wish you were here. Another great poem with another great last line, too. That was Lay It Bare from Disease of Kings, Anders Carlson Wee's new book, just out from Norton. Anders, thanks so much for being a guest. It's been so informative. Uh, the, the book is just wonderful, and we've learned a lot all getting to talk to you. So thanks for being here and joining us for the hour. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. If you all check out the book, I hope you enjoy it. Um, there's obviously a lot of poems we didn't get to in this and a lot of narrative threads. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Tim. Very cool. Thanks a lot, Anders. Yeah, once again, that was Anders Carlson Wee with Disease of Kings, his new book. You can find uh, all of Anders' work at Anders Carlson Wee, spelled just like it is uh, on the book, anderscarlsonwee.com. So do check that out. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to the open lines. And how that works is um, I'm going to go grab the Zoom link and put it in the uh, chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. And then you can share, come on, share a poem, uh, two-page max, anything you'd like to share. We have the prompt every week, of course. The prompt was to write a uh, hyben that includes time. And we'll have a prompt, of course, for next week based on Anders' uh, poetry. Um, uh, but you can share that. You can share poems about current events. You can share something you wrote, uh, wrote recently, something you published recently. Anything you'd like to share, join on the chat. Uh, I'm pasting the things in now. And uh, we will be back in just a moment with more poetry. Oh, and I forgot to say, sorry, I forgot to do this part. Email the poem, too, to openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com, so that we can um, show the poem on screen as you uh, read, like we were doing with Anders. So email it to openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com, so I can show it on the screen. And we'll be right back with more poetry. back thanks for your patience and like i mentioned the uh prompt this week was to write a hyben that mentions time and let's go first to our uh, prompt poem editor katie dozier who picked that prompt and of course has a uh, poem for us too hey katie how you doing i think this is my least clear poem in a long time <laughs> so so what was it like writing uh writing this prompt that we know you know we love haiku uh and uh and the hyphen is a specially fun form of haiku uh what was your experience with that aspect of it well it's funny because i write like way too many hyphen like particularly like the last time i was on a plane i just spent it basically writing hyphen right but I wanted to push myself and try to do one that was, you know, multi-prose, multi-haiku. And I found it to be unexpectedly really challenging. <laughs> like, I it wasn't going to be very challenging at all, to be honest. But it was a really interesting experience writing one. Yeah, well, you'll see mine in a little bit. But I did a braided hyphen for the first time. So usually I do a hyphen with like a little prose and then a haiku, which is like every time I've done it. But this time I tried to mix it in. And it really changes everything to mix it. And so you have... Uh, you have the haiku spread throughout several. Uh, why don't you go ahead and read uh, Time Travel? I'll put it up on screen. Okay. Time Travel. Braiding hair. This time, I crossed my own lines. The earth shoved up sediment until it was the back of a stegosaurus. Every chance the concrete got, it added another crack. The cars and semi-trucks were glued on blocks. I pulled off the highway, driving on a fault line. A graveyard of Joshua trees wave goodbye. Underneath the echo of children asking how much longer, I am buckled, slipped on the stones, an avalanche of honks. The city smog crashed into the thin mountain air. A full steam shift was there. The invisible ink 
appears in a flash. Love story. I pulled off the highway, driving on a fault line. Oh, hang on one second. Somebody... A graveyard. Okay, there we go. Sorry, Turkey, go ahead. It's all right. <laughs> the sky knit a shawl around the shoulders of the mountain. There are times when the only thing to do is to kiss a twist. Our eyes rejoin the golden hour as two lights flipped from red to green, floating in amber, that thing with feathers. A lone headlight whispered out to the descending night. The gravel began to murmur. Soon, another rattle that shook up dust, the sunset swallowed itself to join our hush. All those years, the same moon. Twilight and two steel dinosaurs mirroring our tracks. The train swirled around us and there we unpacked. Climbing the same staircase, double helix. Yeah, excellent, excellent Hyben uh, sequence. And then I, I love the haiku in particular. So let me ask before you go, did you write the haiku first or did you write the haiku as you went? How, how was your haiku to prose to, well, it's actually like a poem. It's, it's one of those, we, we mentioned, uh, we, we talked to Michael, or no, Lou, Lou, uh, Lou Watts, is that his name? Yeah. <laughs> Lou Watts. Yeah. Lou, well, just, yeah. Okay. Lou Watts about, um, you know, not having to have uh, prose in between the haiku and having an uh, actual verse between the two, which is what you did. Uh, but, but what came first? Was it the chicken or the egg? It was, well, I went about this in such a weird way. I wouldn't recommend doing what I did, which is that I basically wrote like, you know, just complete stream of consciousness, a poem that was like very, very rough and raw turn that into the prose section, which is part of why I added all the line breaks and went for more of a poem between the haiku type feel because I felt like it didn't feel actually like prose to me. And then from there, actually, the um, the haiku came because I, I sort of knew where I wanted it to leap and then looked for like an image that uh, hopefully connected it with that. But the double helix one took me in such an embarrassingly long time, you guys, I seriously, I have 19 drafts of that one haiku because also I didn't want to screw up the double helix. I'm not like a molecular biologist or anything. I, so I was like reading about it and yeah, but it was fun to kind of obsess on a poem even more than I normally do. Well, it's funny because that's kind of like the theme of the week with how much Anders obsesses over poems with his 1,500 poems turned into uh, you know, like 39 or whatever for the book. And that is such a great, uh, great haiku at the end uh, that it's a, it's a, you know, unfortunately, I guess we're all going to have to work harder <laughs> maybe based on this experience. Um, but speaking of endings too, you know, we do the poetry space on Thursdays and, uh, it's, a, it's a 3 PM Eastern time over on Twitter. So if you find Katie underscore Dozier on Twitter, that is how you can join us to talk about endings, which is the topic for this week. So perfect, uh, perfect transition there too. We just decided to sit around and chat for about an hour about a subject and that's going to be poem endings this week on the poetry space. Any thoughts you have about that before you go? My thought is that I hope that everybody likes my ending haiku because otherwise it's not the best advertisement from the space about <laughs> poetry endings of my ending thing. Well, I think that is the best haiku in the bunch of good haiku. So thanks, thanks for sharing that, Katie. And uh, we'll see much. you on Thursday. Thank you. All right, bye. Bye. That was Katie Dozier with uh, Time Travel. And of course, Katie is the Prompt Poems editor. And uh, that is our new prompt poem of the month sequence. And so Katie picks these prompts. You have a month to submit them. Um, this is the last prompt for September because it's like the, the deadline for the show is where we count it in the month because otherwise like some months we'd have like the show the last day of the month and that wouldn't make any sense. So um, so you can still write a time travel or not or, or a time based hyben uh, if you'd like 
or any of the four or three, three or four other prompts that we did in the month of September. The deadline is going to be September 30th, of course, at midnight. So feel free to tinker with some poems um, and uh, and write some more poems in the, in the next couple of days and submit them for the prompt poem of the month, which we'll publish on rattle.com, of course, in early October. Now, my poem, um, again, the prompt was to write a uh, haiku that includes time. And I tried for the first time in my life, a braided uh, a hyben, I should say, not haiku, hyben. And a hyben, if you don't know this form, which we should have said before uh, Katie even shared hers, I should have done. Um, it's, a, it's where you take, it's, it comes from like a, a journalistic, diaristic um, place in the Japanese tradition where you'd write in a sort of a journalistic entries for a lot of travel logs and things like that and include haiku with the descriptions of what you were experiencing. And so there's a lot of like journalistic chronological um, explication and then haiku expanding and broadening and deepening that experience, which is really fun. And, uh, and so, so it's that interspersal. And then we can play with it a whole number of ways. One of the new ways is to make a braided hyben in which you will see that I have done. It's the first time I've ever tried it in which each line of the haiku is separated out. And uh, this is called the point. So here you go with mine, the point. Distance can be measured in time. Your home and the minutes to work. Your love and the hours away. Distant orchard. And time can be measured in distance. How many millions of miles has this photon traveled to meet you? How many feet will you walk from the womb the weight of the apple. So when we fold the book of space, time too collapses, and every word returns to rest upon its other word. Every point restores its counterpoint. The separation is brief, and what is brief to the book on the shelf? What, without time, is separation waiting for you? So the haiku is, distant orchard, the weight of the apple waiting for you. And that is my uh, hyben for the day, a braided hyben. Uh, try those out. It was a little difficult, like Katie was talking about, to get the voices different enough where you could hear in my head, which is very always sound-based, um, the, uh, the, the haiku and the, the other poem separate was a difficulty. But uh, I think I figured it out at the end. So that was the point. So thanks, everybody, for uh, letting me share that. And now let's go. We have a lot of people on the lines. Everybody's got to try to be quick, I think, today. There's uh, 22 people. I'd like to get to everybody if possible, and we'll go in order uh, they appear. And Dick Westheimer is up next. Hey, Dick. Hey. Um, I'll get I'll get right to it. So. Yeah, Gracie. Well, I still have to actually have to re-log in to my uh, my open mic account on the email. So hang on a second. But what 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 do you like to share today, Dick? Uh, yeah, I I tried a prompt poem. Uh, mm-hmm. Another attempt at a hyphen. Um, I haven't quite figured out the sort of the journalistic part, so I'm still stuck on the prose poem sort of view of the world, but uh, we'll see how it works. And, yeah, well, uh, Lou Watts, I mean, mentioned, we keep mentioning him when we talk about Hyben, but that book um, that, that he does in his Hyben are just really wonderful. So, um, yeah, right there, The Writer's Guide. And so uh, that's a good ex- ex- example. He's a, he's a former scientist. He's He was, I think, a marine biologist maybe or an a- archaeologist or something like that. And so he has a lot of poems that have this like scientific voice describing something, and then he goes into the haiku, which is a good way. I think it needs some kind of contrast, so that's uh, that's good to see. But anyway, let's see, let's hear what you got. Okay, and just uh, for context, you know, uh, tonight or today, last night and today were Yom Kippur, and coming up is the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, which starts on the full moon. 
Um, and this has an epigraph from Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. When a person turns himself around, regrets his past, and does good, that is such a powerful act that his sins become merits. Mm -hmm. After one more Yom Kippur, turning and turning again, this season turns on a leaf parting from its mother tree. It tumbles light to the ground and finds the root and rock and soil that made all of them one. It is the time for turning, for inscriptions, for decay, the sort that smells alive on a cool afternoon when the slant sun warms what's beneath the gold canopy. How is it that so much happens on a day when I'm supposed to turn and ask you to forgive me? A day when all I've done is get drunk on the sound of leaves becoming dust beneath my feet, on a day when I don't choose to turn full enough around to remember. There is a fire on the horizon that will consume all of this. Tree, leaf, you, me. Autumn leaves, the color of flame burning. The campfire raised its blazing arms to the moon, pulled it so close we could feel its light on our shoulders. We sat around singing soft songs to each other of the turning of the season, of a time for war and reason, a time for unrelenting heat, a time of seeing each other in the kindest light. We knew, uh, we knew none of our children would ever move home, and those who sat with us around the embers longed for the warmth of their phones. They weren't wrong. They were done. We'd set their world ablaze, and they were too weary to extinguish it. Aging friends around a fire, sparks fly. Oh, that was wonderful, Dick, and a great ending, too. That sparks fly, the twist at the end is just great. Uh, it's a great example of a, a good ending, too. Um, excellent. Hi, Ben. Thanks for sharing it. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for the interview. It was really uh, Anders put on quite a show with you. Yeah, he definitely did. He's great, too. Thanks, thanks, Dick. Yeah. It was uh, Dick Westheimer with uh, After One More Yom Kippur Turning and Turning Again. Uh, let's go to Sharon Ferrante next, who is uh, the month of September's prompt poet of the month. Uh, with her uh, uh, haiku sequence. So she's got a leg up on the hyben too. Hey, Sharon, how you doing? Hi, everybody. No, I have no leg up on the hyben. Uh, I don't even know if it's a hyben. But I got I got some help from a friend to do the prose part. But when I shared it, I shared it a couple times. And when the first time I shared it, somebody said, whoa, that's a little otherworldly. And I'm like, well, okay, that's a lot like me. <laughs> And I also did the from last week prompt too. Oh, interesting. Because they're very short. Mm -hmm. Do you have them both? Um, I always wanted. I just have the uh, the sequel. I'm trying to find the other one. Let's see. Um, is it the hyphen prompt? Is it? Did you submit it, or am, is it? I'm looking on my email. No, I sent it on the open mic. Okay, let me. Uh... If you can't find it, that's fine. <laughs> oh no, I found it. I found it. I found it. There's just a bunch I'm here. Okay, I'm so let's do. Which one do you want to do first? Of, I'll get rid of the hiding first. Okay. I'm not good at the hiding. I had a friend help me. Hi, Nate. <laughs> okay. Um, the door was a deity. I thought for sure it had friends like the sun and the moon. I stood there for hours staring at it. Wondering if I was colorful enough to cast light. 
being all broken into pieces. Finally, I would knock, though I knew you weren't home. Then I would leave, but I came back again and again, each time feeling a little more colorful and a little less broken. Round trip through stained glass, enlightenment. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, thanks. So you do, you definitely have, anytime there's a short form, Sharon, you definitely, I'm that on <laughs> you're just wonderful at all those. So uh, the hyphen is, is right up your alley, I think, too. But thanks for sharing that. And then quickly, you have another one, too, right? The uh... Yeah, I so wanted to do the sequel. Mm-hmm. So I picked um, a really short poem by Mike White, mm-hmm. Basho Glimpsed. Can I read that first? Oh, sure. That's very very short. Yeah, go ahead. Four long (laughs) Basho glimpsed. Miles from anywhere, Nevada. Head down, walking. Nothing on his back but the moon. Yeah, and that's from Rattle. I'm not sure which one. It's pretty early on, maybe 26 or so. Back in the... I think that might be my first Mike White poem. My first Mike White experience. Uh (laughs) I just love this book. Okay. And I got his other book, too. Okay. So my sequel, I always wanted to be like Basho, walk with the moon. But all I did was trip and fall in stars, landing in Star, Idaho. It was there he told me, take a breath, take a moment, gather up the stars, place them on a tiny world. No more tripping or falling, just the moon. Oh, that's great. Excellent sequel, of course. Uh, and the sequel is to, to continue the poem, uh, to continue a source poem, basically, is the sequel. And that is a continuation of Basho Glimpse by Mike White. That was excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sharon. Okay, I want to be Mike White and I want to be Basho. <laughs> yeah, well, you're halfway there at least, <laughs> maybe more. Oh, I don't know if I told you what a great, what a great show with... with Andre, I mean, the, the, the interview was just fabulous. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank I appreciate it. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. Andrew's was great. I really loved it. I loved the book. Yeah. And uh, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Sharon. Good to see you. Thank you. It was Sharon Fronte with the two poems. Uh, Tom Barlow is next. Thanks, Tim. Hey, Tom. I think I've got the uh, poem to read that matches the one I sent you this time. <laughs> Sounds good. And this is, this is a hyphen I see. Yes, it's called the Cherry Camaro. Engine work done, I listened to my Camaro gurgle motor oil before giving us both a pose bath. I scrawl another X on the Valvoline calendar, and there I am, passed out again in the back seat, white castle sleeves stinking up the floor. My sunglasses are in the glove box, and it takes me half an hour to retrieve them. Last night, I begged the bartender to cut me off after three, so she, she lined up three long necks on the bar like I was some Joey Chestnut. Sometimes waking is like a nail gun fired into the webbing of my thumb. When my boss calls from the roof of a McMansion to see where I am, I tell him, I tell me, he tells me not to bother coming in anymore. I take it as an occasion to celebrate, maybe breakfast at the track, burritos with ghost peppers, and wonder if I really know what love is anymore. I call out to my wife, hey, Carmen, are we still living the dream? And the, and the haiku reads, V8 swinging from a tree limb, 
Christmas decorations. Oh, that was great. Yeah, very fun. I love the haiku too, the V8 swing from a tree. Interesting too to see the uh, two-line haiku. I read an article in Frogpond not too long ago about like, why don't we do two-line haiku? There's only like 2% of the... I never wrote two-line haiku until you started <laughs> ranting about it. And I, <laughs> and I learned. Well, that's great. Yeah, it was really cool to see, Tom. That's excellent haiku and a great... Is this the first time you've written a hyphen? Uh, no, but it's it's uh, the first time I've written a persona hyphen. Ah, well, it's excellent. Yeah, very fun. Thanks for sharing that, Tom. That's Tom Barlow with uh, the Cherry Camaro. Uh, next in line is uh, uh, Audrey Friedman, who I know Audrey loves uh Hyben. so this is a her her week to shine as well hey audrey how you doing hi tim very good um this is the first time that i wrote a hyphen with two haikus ah interesting um, a little adventurous yeah it does change things a lot more than i anticipated to be honest to have just to break the you know break them apart um yeah okay what was great was the haikus are recycled lines that I cherished and never had a place to really. Oh, that's perfect. Uh -huh. I hope they work here. Let's hear it. The liar. Time wins the contest for telling lies. Over the years, I've scraped my knees, navigating cracked city sidewalks on roller skates, thinking I was Nike on wings. Occasionally, I missed a step on the stairs as I intuitively skipped down without looking. Naively, I wandered through the decades oblivious to these mishaps, and time let me believe I was over them. The compartment of memory keeps me blind. I herniated a disc as a result of hyperextending 30-something years ago while cleaning the basement shelves, and now I've been noticing zaps down my outer thigh. 15 years ago, I got tangled in the laundry pile and fell hard on my shoulder. Now I can no longer sleep on my right side with my arm cradled under my pillow. Old scars are starting to complain and I fetch. Don't believe what time has told you. It just distracts you long enough for you to think you've escaped the throbs, burns, dull aches. Makes you think the bones have meshed, the muscles have regenerated. But no, Luna's faces, each returns. The past is never far behind. Oh, that's another wonderful one, The Liar by Audrey Friedman. Uh, yeah, great, great, another hyphen. And... Uh... As I say, you know, it's 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 great th about these uh, poems for the prompt poems because there's so many hyphen journals, so many haiku journals. It's like a really welcoming community with a lot of, you know, things you can submit things. There's a, uh, you know, there's journals that just focus on hyphen alone. So I hope everybody gets to share. Yours. Hope hope you you share yours out there too with the rest of the haiku community, Audrey. That's great. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, Audrey Friedman with the liar. All right. Next up, we have uh, John Yo. Hey, John. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Good to see you. Uh, good man, Tim. Uh, okay. Ivan, I've never done one before, but this is a first. Uh, it's called In Tribute to um, Your Magazine, Rattlesnakes. Uh, all right. Okay. Well, that is something around here, up in the mountains. We have too many. 
and I uh, I'm always worried about stepping on one. <laughs> so, are you in California, by the way? What's that? Where are you in California? Yeah, up in the mountains of California. Yeah, and there's I, I've literally like my foot hovered over because <laughs> they blend in so well with the pine needles and everything. Oh God, and the kids out Riding hiking. Up. Yeah, I make in Texas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a crazy story. Um, rattlesnakes skirt around the edges, picking at the skin, clipping hedges, not so willing to go within. There's nothing on its periphery but olden times and old minds casting lens against a sea of futures that come rolling in. The clots are both dyed and named. The winds of change blow heavenly. Leaves leave, but are still, but it's still not the end. Mayhem, pure mayhem, uproots all plotted trajectories, casting them aside for fortunes unknown. The baffle of condition, phrase, until in the end, there's no escaping. Lay down in the grass in season. Feel yourself grow from the roots. All crying aside, you were meant to grow, not to stand stifled on your lonely street, alone to join an impossible debt march to, the, to some cemetery plot. Get off your ass and dance. It's September after all. Oh, I love that last uh, haiku especially too. Great endings on all these poems. Thanks for sharing that. Let's go uh, next to Emily D, um, which is Emily, of course... Um, Emily D. Ferrari, that's the West of D. Yes. Hey, Emily, sorry. I, was, I didn't want to say Hi. it wrong, and then I, like, bungled it anyway. But anyway. Oh, you did it great, De Ferrari. <laughs> like the sports car. Um, I can't wait to be able to go back and watch this again so I can see the poems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with this form especially, it would have been nice to be able to see them. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah, well, definitely. It is good to see, good to see where they come from. Yeah. So I just, this is an... Mm, This is a uh, poet's response Mm -hmm. from a couple of weeks ago. Um, I had heard an article, I had heard an article on the radio about the particle, the muon, if I'm pronouncing it Mm -hmm. correctly, that was Mm -hmm. wobbling in the magnetic force. Interesting. Um, And then I wasn't going to read this, but after reading Exile, Lisa Lisa's poem today, Mm -hmm. I decided I would read this tonight. Ah, cool. Okay, let's hear it. Dark matter. I watch the cardamom wobble as I stir the dark coffee, bring up a froth on top, and you will not take the cup, nor the saucer, see the wobble that in other dimensions holds the clue to missing humanity. In this cup, no bomb cluster, no poison sheep, no prison, no hunger strike. The unseen is the answer only in this cup, or in the curve of Earth's shadow across the carving of the lunar eclipse, or the spine of the ocean arching to unite with the sky in the crumpling satin of sunset. Oh, beautiful lines throughout that one. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Emily. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, it was Dark Matter by uh, Emily Ferrari. Yeah, excellent. So let's go uh, next to Nate Jacob. Good evening. Hey, Nate. Good to see you. Hey, I uh, wrote a prompt poem. Excellent. 
quality is an issue we can call it a low bun <laughs> I, i'm sure that's not the case but let's hear <laughs> let's hear your high bun all right typical of me i wrote again about my uh kids mm -hmm. so if you're, if you're all getting sick of that then, oh no uh, we all love it nate we would definitely do <laughs> all right astronomy for dummies and parents <laughs> Uh, and I, I put two uh, haiku, one to start and one to finish. The first haiku is, change is slow, is fast. Children spin across the sky. It's only time. The light of the comets outpaces the comets. And after years of knowing they would arrive, the comets do, kicking up streams of faint dust across our corner of forever to a fanfare reserved especially for recurring dreams and expected movie ending. We knew it would come to this, but it feels so good to be in the moment after waiting so long. We also knew they would leave. We both knew it all along. Off to college and lovers and jobs, maybe a plot twist or two. I knew you would cry and that I would laugh and shrug and wish I could have been too busy for this moment. Letting go is so hard. These kids arrived in a burst of timeless light. They don't leave darkness behind them. They leave a winking dust tail we will try to hold fast. I would hold you high, twirl you before you fall away through space and time. Uh, I love that. I can really relate to that too, Nate. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, yeah, I mean, you have, uh, I think, three times as many ways to relate as I do, but, but still, that hits home. Thanks for sharing it, Nate. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yep, take care. So Nate Jacob with Astronomy for Dummies and Parents. Uh, Mark Grinier's next. Uh, Deb is next. I'm not sure if that's Deb T. We'll see who that is. That is Deb T. Hello, Deb. How I'm you hiding. Doing? I'm hiding a little bit. <laughs> that's all right. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, yeah, this is my first high bond. I love, love, love the interview and the poetry. And um, I, um, when it came to doing the high bend, I am feeling like uh, I just wrote it today. And uh -huh. so... I'm using that as an excuse, but my, my prose is quite narrative, maybe not so poetic or musical. Well, I but think, I, you know, the contrast between the two is what works really well. Um, well, so, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I, I, uh, I'm not seeing this poem, though. Um, oh, shoot. You know what? That's yeah. because I wasn't, I was ambivalent about it, so I didn't send it to you. Okay. But I can, I have it right here in my drafts, and I will send it to you. Yeah. And, and I should say, as I'm, I'm pulling up the next guest, making sure, uh, Deb's poem is here. I just think too, Hyben is the is the best because you have um, so many opportunities to publish. Because I think the haiku community is like looking for new people all the time, and then for the regular mainstream community, it's like, oh, what's this weird thing, a Hyben? So it's really great, um, great to have these. I hope we see a bunch of them get published. Uh, Deb, I have your uh, Hyben. Are you ready? I am ready. <clears throat> uh, good to see you again. Okay, so uh, anything you want to say about the Hyben, or you want to jump in? Um, I already said something, so I'll just jump okay. in. Like I said, I think it, we'll see where it goes, but this is what I have so far. Thinning trees. Whenever I visit my family in New Jersey, I stay for two weeks in the old brick house of my younger brother. He gives me obvious instructions every time. Put water in the coffee maker. There's food in the fridge. Lock the door when you leave. My brother goes to work while I spend each day with my 90-year-old mother who has Alzheimer's. She lives nearby in a condo with a live-in caregiver. 
Mom crows with delight each morning when I open her door. I'm always a surprise. She can't remember I'm coming. I think of myself as a capable adult in my 60s, but when it's raining like yesterday afternoon, she frets about me driving in the wet after dark and keeps asking me to leave. She can't come up with words like drive or rain or dark, but she points to the water smeared window. I know what she wants me to do. She loves me, loves being with me, but good moms take care of their kids. She can't run the remote for the TV and gives me a blank look when I say the names of these two everyday items. I pause Golden Girls when my sister calls on FaceTime. When the call ends, mom tells me that she's inadvertently stopped the Golden Girls. Inadvertently flows off her tongue. She needs me to restart it for her. No problem. It's harder to abide by her pleas to cut my visit short. It's only three o'clock, nowhere near nightfall, but no amount of patient explanation eases her worry. She can't track time or remember what I say. So I go. Backyard, bees hop among the poppies. A saw buzzes. Oh, that is excellent. I love that that leap between the prose and the high. It's just a perfect uh, example of what, what a hyphen does, which is that you sort of get lost in this whole story, um, and then you sort of pop out in some deeper layer out of nowhere that just hits you out of, like, you know, by surprise. It's a perfect example of how it works. Excellent, uh, excellent example, Deb. Oh, thank you, Tim. Yeah, thanks. That was Thinning Trees by Deb Tannenbaum. Rick Christensen is next, very patiently waiting. I think this is the first time we've had Rick on the uh, open line. Hey, Rick. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I was on here last year with a guzzle. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, I, I uh, responded to the prompt on time. Uh, Katie Dozier and Audrey Friedman both encouraged me to bring this on board tonight. What I wanted to do, because I was fascinated by the idea of time, I said, let me write something very small because I wanted to just capture a moment. Oh, and so, so it's called Traces, and here it is. Okay. The taint of loss is like a dormant ache, awakening as I hold these photographs. I wonder where she is now, what path she's walked, and if she, too, gazes at these same faded images, feeling the weight of time's passage. I rub the slick Polaroids with my thumb, willing back my history. In soils... Secret keep, blooms in silence bound. Oh, that is wonderful too. Traces. These are just all so good. Thanks for sharing that, Rick. It's good to see you again, and, and really wonderful hymen. Thank you very much. Yep. Great to be here. Yep. Take care. Yeah, Rick Christensen with traces. Uh, man, this is like maybe one of the best open mics ever. I'd say. Uh, Joe Nolan is next. We have a few people left. Hey, Joe. Hey, Tim. How are you doing? I'm great. It's good to see you too. I've got Zombie Consumer. It's not a high wound. It's just a, a poem which I thought might be kind of fun. Oh, well, it definitely. It sounds like it fits with uh, Anders' topic that he was talking about. So I think it's a good choice. Right. Well, you know, Anders strikes me as kind of a religious figure, you know, with uh, asceticism and renunciation. Hmm. Yeah, that's at, a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he, his parents were, uh, his father was a minister, I guess, right, mm-hmm. in the yeah. Lutheran church. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, he, I think, picked up on that religious uh, aspect. But anyway, here we go. This is on the pernicious influences 
of mass marketers. Zombie consumer. Tell me what to eat. Tell me what to drink. Tell me what to want. Tell me what to think. Tell me what to smoke. And that'll never choke. As long as it's your brand. I believe your lies. I've been zombified. I'm just a zombie consumer. I have no sense of pride. This emptiness inside. I feel compelled to fill with any given swill. I just need you to tell me. I'm just a zombie consumer. I feel so mesmerized. I feel I'm hypnotized. By girls laid on the cars. By beer signs at the bars. By bikinis on the beach. By butt cheeks out of reach. If I don't get laid, I'll die. I'm totally zombified. I'm just a zombie consumer. <laughs> That's great, Joe. I love how you sing those poems, and that is especially song-like and such an entertaining song, too, Zombie Consumer. Thanks, Joe. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. That was uh, Joe Nolan with Zombie Consumer. Uh, Paul Michiel Bernstein is next in line. we got two people left. Hey, Paul. Hey, Tim. How's it going? Uh, good. Awesome. I uh, My internet's a little wonky tonight, so I'm going to stay off cam. No, very good. That makes it better. We really want to hear your voice. It's the most important part. Yeah, it's better than my face. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so, uh, yeah, so I did the prompt. You have it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I ran this. I withdrew it uh, also because I've made some changes. I ran it by a friend of mine who made some suggestions, especially that she didn't like the title. And so just before I sent it, I kind of changed the title a couple of times, mm-hmm. came up on a wasted life, um, which I then Googled and found that it's a pretty common name for a poem. So um, <laughs> I might change it again. I probably will. Well, and, it looks uh, good to me. See my little E.E. E. Cummings influence. Yeah, in I definitely do. Well. <laughs> that was a great, by the way, on, on Twitter, you highlighted that uh, one of those poems uh, by E.E. E. Cummings was actually a, a haiku. And I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. I never noticed it before, but um, it totally fits. He just puts it in the middle instead of the beginning or the end. Yeah, I think it's a, a kind of a convergent evolution, because I think when he uh, you know, wrote that poem, which, what, what is it called? Um, it's called uh, um, Leaf Falling on Loneliness. It should be in loneliness, I think, but I think it's on loneliness. Yeah, I tell you, it's the one where it's like loneliness, and then there's a leaf falling in parentheses inside of it, and totally right. a haiku. And uh, but that was before anybody really, I think, uh, shared haiku with the West. So it was sort of a tradition that we didn't know anything about. But but uh, convergently, um, E. Coming settled on that way to work. I it. wonder if he did it on purpose or it was just a happy accident. I think it must have been an accident because I really I don't think anybody brought haiku over until Blythe in like the forties. But but I could oh. be wrong about that. But anyway, let's uh, let's hear this. A wasted life. Okay, cool. A wasted life. Uh, let's see, get a handle on my bar here. A wasted life. I walked the storied hall of the old student union building toward the office where she was editing staff photo captions for the campus paper's year-end edition. I'd been drinking wine at the river and was hungry. It was lunchtime and I thought she might want to eat. Veranda tiles cool on morning feet, pretty leaves. 
She was quiet as we crossed the campus toward town. I recited the poem I'd spent all morning writing. I tried to hold her hand, but she pulled away. I can't be with you, she said suddenly. My family would never allow it. I'm supposed to marry a doctor or a lawyer, someone who can take care of me. There was silence for a moment. A brisk September breeze rattled through the changing leaves, and she asked, can you? Grass, dandelions, and bees, honey pulled the weeds. One night following the following spring, I saw her at Snug Harbor. She was in the back, sitting on a stool against the wall, looking bored, watching some guys play pool. Jack, the bartender, told me one of them was her fiance. Death is a vast ocean. Welcome, baby. Oh, that was excellent to you. Really, every hymen today has been great, and that's no exception. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was Paul Michel Bernstein with uh, A Wasted Life. And uh, and then if you can't, if you're only listening, A Wife is, is sort of in there. So the parentheses sort of pull that word out. Really interesting title, too. And that is going to wrap it up for the open lines. So uh, let's wrap up the show. And now we have a Saiku really quickly. And the Saiku this week was based on the following article. Let me pull it up. This is from uh, hawaii.edu, the University of Hawaii News. Here we go. So this is the article. Electrons may be forming water on the moon. And so what these researchers did, this was um, out of the University of Hawaii. They were looking at, by satellite, the difference um, as the moon passes through the magnetosphere of the earth and the plasma sheet. So basically, you know, the sun is like spitting out all of this solar wind, radiation, particles, um, and electrons, all sorts of things. And the earth shield, um, you know, deflects them, but there's this like coma, this like trail at the end, which is called the uh, magnetosphere. And what these researchers did is they had all these the satellites that are looking at the moon already collecting data. They compared the formation of certain molecules, including water when it passed through the coma of the uh, magnetosphere and what they found is that that participates in the creation of water so it's actually the earth sort of shooting up electrons making water on the moon which is a pretty cool story so that was my uh hike that was my uh inspiration for this psyku the psyku is right here invisible strings between the moon and you matter invisible strings between the moon and you matter that is your Saiku. And then, but wait, it was interesting because I was thinking about this. And there's a quote in this article um, about previous research about uh, the moon rusting. Um, this was the last paper that um, Lee, where's the author's first name? I can't find it. Uh, but this author uh, at the University of Hawaii uh, published an article about similarly the uh, moon rusting from oxygen shot off on the earth. And that, and that reminded me of something. And I thought I might have written a haiku about that a couple of years ago and I looked it up and I did the same author. So we have this relationship where I write about um, their research very often. And this is uh, from September, 2022. So three years ago, I wrote a psych based on the same researchers last paper. And it was full extent of my influence moon rust. And so uh, that's probably still the case full extent of my influence moon rust. That was the uh, old psych 
uh, from three years ago based on uh, the same. I thought that was a funny coincidence. I thought I would share it. But that is uh, the show for this week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. The prompt for next week, um, as you can imagine, I try to drop a little hint. um, But Katie chose, um, she saw that poem Cups which was an American poetry review, which Katie subscribes to, I think. And she loved that poem and wanted to make a prompt based on that. And then he ended up reading the poem anyway. So that was perfect. The prompt for this week is to pick an inanimate object and trace the evolution of your relationship with it throughout your life. Entitle it with the name of that object, like Anders Carlson Wee's poem, uh, Cups, of course. So find something like the cups that he used and write a poem about that throughout your whole life, though. Should be an interesting prompt. Um, and then that will be for, like I said before, um, you can submit it for Prompt Poem of the Month by going to rattle.com slash rattlecast. You can see the link there to submit on Submittable. Um, this will be for the month of October, actually. So so you have a lot of time to write this poem. Uh, for the last, the last four or five prompts for September, you can still submit those until the first of the month. So that's how it's going to work. Uh, for the prompt poem of the month. So you have a lot of time to write this one, but write one by next week. Pick an inanimate object and trace the evolution of your relationship with it throughout your life and title it with the name of that object. So that is your mission, should you choose to accept it. And next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be Arthur Russell. So subscribers in print have a copy of At the Car Wash, the first of our three Rattle Chapbook Prize winners for this year. Um, at the car wash is about the relationship, the complicated relationship with his father who owned this car wash and all things that went on about it. It's a wonderful book, very honest and from the heart. Uh, really interesting person, Arthur Russell. He's going to be our guest talking about his chat book um, on Rattlecast number 213. The regular time on Monday, October 2nd, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you there. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night.